Here's the tally, Jimbo. You had Atlanta at even money, tough break, and you got bombed in the Duke Wake Forest fiasco, and you split the Quinell at Holly Park, so you're the book $4.50. Anytime before Friday, huh, buddy? Welcome to 200 a Day, the podcast where we talk about the 70s television detective show, The Rockford Files. As always, I am Nathan Paletta. I am Epidiah Ravishaw. And this time we are taking a taking a hop, hop skip, and a jump to season four to yes. talk about our episode. Uh, this was a choice of yours, Epi. What is it and why did you pick it? Uh, I picked it because I couldn't remember it. Uh, once once I started watching it, I definitely could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just couldn't remember it from the the IMDb description. So this episode is season four, episode 17, Dwarf in a Helium Hat, which is uh, a great name. <laughs> it gets explained. It actually, yeah, it is, it is given a line reading uh, late in the episode. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that part is a joke on something that I don't, I can't quite get. But anyways, uh... The one-line pitch in IMDb was, a threat to the wrong number has Jim scrambling to find out who it was meant for. And I was like, yeah, that's, I'd watch that. Like, that's, uh, so that's why I chose it. I also didn't really remember it. I remembered the wrong number premise. Right. And that there was, like, something to do with a musician. Yes. I also thought that it was in season five. Like, I was looking through my season five discs and being like, where is it? Uh, Based entirely on the title, because it's of a piece with a lot of the season five titles where they start getting weird. Yeah. With the French heel back is the Nehru jacket, you know, (laughs) soon to come. Like, all those. Yeah. We've we've gone over this before, how they just started going crazy with the titles in season five. So, unlike you, who has perfect recall about which disc you need. Oh, that was so good. So satisfying. <laughs> I mean, I knew I knew I was going uh, at season four. I pulled the top of the DVD set box off and I was like, okay, it's season four, which I think makes it just slightly more towards the end than the middle, but it's probably late for. And I then realized that I didn't know which side of my DVD box was season one and which side was season six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, I just, I just went for it and I got it. First one out. Sorry, this is the game I play. <laughs> you've done this before. This is not the first time you've gotten it right on the first the first poll. So I'm also getting smarter about replacing the DVDs in mm. the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, if 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 the listeners at home have the uh, Mill Creek DVD set, which is held together by you know construction paper, <laughs> <laughs> the sleeves cover most of it. So I've now put them in so that the the listing is exposed every time you look at the disc I so see. you could have a better idea because i just kept pulling them out pulling the disc out then putting it back in anyways none of this is exciting dvd pro tips from yeah Epi. well what is exciting is uh is this episode yeah i'm i'm interested for our conversation uh i think i'm going to save some thoughts for the end sure yeah um yes this is uh back half of season four this is a stephen cannell and david chase script <laughs> and I think the thing that sticks with me the most upon this rewatch, because I have seen this before, uh, is just some of the language, just the line, just yeah. lines. There's just so many lines. We've, we're coming, at, at the time of our recording, we're a, not fresh off of, but just past our Malibu Madness stuff, where mm-hmm. we got to talk about some of the best juicy lines or whatever. Because this one... This one might have dominated that category. <laughs> well, yeah, it definitely, like, uh, I don't know how it would have done against, say, uh, you give you make me a... Sure. You hand me an ice cream sandwich. But it, there are some 
you hand me an ice cream sandwich lines in this mm-hmm. that are, are delivered by a villain. Like when we get towards the end and we get to this villain, there's some just really good uh, dialogue there. The diction, just the word choice of some of these. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of soliloquies. Like there's a lot of like, and now this character is going to talk for a while, which is yeah. not super common in the Rockford Files, but um, they're they're judicious and good in this episode. I feel like this episode... <sighs> I I feel like it's a response to a thing that is happening in a subsection of a culture. <laughs> yeah. So there's some moralizing yeah. going on. And I feel like they th- there are a few key opportunities that they take to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with it because I'm not the subsection of the community that's being moralized against. Right. Yeah, I, I think I, I know what you mean. Well, as we say... We'll get into it. Uh, this episode is uh, our second visit with director Reza Badi, um, who we first saw in The Becker Connection, and then also directed Second Chance, which I didn't remember. So this is our third ah. visit of uh, his seven Rockford Falls episodes. Yeah, we'll be doing more of those. Oh, yes. <laughs> more towards the towards the end of the series. Also directed one Mrs. Columbo episode. If I remember right, one of the director's claims of fame is that he's like directed more episodes of television than almost anyone. Over 200 episodes, um, including directing the iconic wave curl to the beginning of Hawaii Five O. Oh, nice. Directed more Incredible Hulk episodes than Rockford Files. We'll leave it at that. He died in 2011. I was going to say he did like all the way up into like Baywatch and Baywatch Nights and uh, into the 90s uh, Sliders. Sliders, yeah. Yeah. Most memorably, of course, Mortal Kombat Conquest. Yes. (laughs) Which I did not know existed. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Anyways, there's a very storied history here. Uh, The Mortal Kombat television show, which ran for one season in 1999. uh, The actor who plays Kung Lao is... Paolo Montalban and I was like no but no <laughs> no relation to to Ricardo. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, uh back to the matter at hand. Um yes. <laughs> yes, so we'll be seeing more of uh Riza Buddy's work uh as we get through the later seasons of the show. Um yeah. All right, I'll jump into the opening montage then. Yeah. Uh another very brief one. I feel like we've had a couple of very brief preview montages recently. There was a moment in the show where there was a little sped up action and maybe oh, wonder yeah. if they will tight on time. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one, I just have two notes. The first one is the line and we'll, like this line will come back with, or this is the party you don't come home from. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's great. Uh, and then of course, bus chase, bus chase, <laughs> piano goes into a pool. Oh yeah. There's clearly gangsters involved or mobsters. I should say clearly yeah. coded mobsters, but yeah, the big centerpiece here is the tour bus looking bus that Jim is whipping all over the place. The montage sold me on it. I mean, they always do, but like uh, from the that line at all, this 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 is the part of you don't come home from. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'd watch that movie. <laughs> Hello, listeners. We're going to take a quick break to say thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash 200 a day. As always, we extend a special thanks to our gumshoe level patrons. This time, we say thank you to Shane Liebling. If you play games online, you should check out his free dice rolling app Roll for Your Party at rollforyour.party. Jay Adon, check out his amazing miniature painting skills over at jayadon.com. Dylan Winslow, Dale Norwood, Dave P., and Dale Church. And finally, big thanks to our detective level patrons. Check them out on Twitter, Eric and Tenor at 
Ann Tenner, A-N-T-E-N-E-R, Brian Pereira, at Thermoware, Bill Anderson, at Billand88, and of course, Richard Haddam, at Richard Haddam. We follow them too, at 200pod. Why become a patron? In addition to supporting the show and exclusive episode previews, our patrons get Plus Expenses, a bonus podcast where we casually chat about all the media we're currently enjoying. 200 a day will remain free to all for as long as we do it, but if you want to help support us and get access to the Plus Expenses audio feed, you can become a patron for just $1 an episode. Help out the show by leaving a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend who you think would like it, and check out patreon.com slash 200 a day to see if becoming a patron is right for you. So this episode, you don't realize, I didn't realize the episode had started. Because <laughs> it's, it's the phone gag is how they start. Like, it's not exactly the same, but it yeah. starts with a pan. And I noticed this just, I don't know, because it's Rocky. But it starts with a shot of the picture of Rocky on Jim's desk and the slow pan over his desk while the phone is ringing. Yes. So if you just walked in and turned on the TV, this very well could be the answering machine bit yes. <laughs> before the credits. But the credits are playing over this, like, as soon as we start the episode. But yes, this call does not go to the answering machine because this is clearly waking Jim up late at night and he comes uh, shuffling out to to answer the phone. Not as in some episodes with a phone in his bedroom. Right. But let's wait. We got to talk the the picturesque Jimbo sleeping situation Mm, here where he's got his striped PJs that match his striped sheets. It's, It's great. Wonderful. It's, it definitely has the look of like a like a uh, uh, department store catalog. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely noticed the sheets as well. Uh, and I also I wonder if this is a director thing or like a camera person thing or what. But I feel like there are a lot of very visual like palettes in this episode. Mm-hmm. Like the sheets are kind of one because they have the stripy pattern and yeah and everything. But there's multiple. Uh, this is one where Jim wears one of his, uh, I think, uh, uh, trademark pale yellow shirts. Yeah. Um, and there are multiple scenes where he's in like a dark yellow sport coat over a pale yellow shirt on front of an off yellow beige background <laughs> it's like multiple it's not like ugly or gross it's like i mean it's a palette that yeah. i like but <laughs> it's like very uh you know was this just it just worked out this way or was someone trying to make or is this the 70s exactly exactly <laughs> no way to know no way to know um well jim picks up the phone and it is a curt demanding uh person on the other side telling him to look outside your dog is dead you and the lansing girl have 12 hours or something to that effect. So, spoiler alert, the dog is okay. Yeah, let's just let our audience know, if you haven't watched the episode, the dog ends up all right. Yes. Because I was definitely immediately thinking, what did I choose for an episode? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so, the dog's okay. But in this threat, uh, they say that your dog is dead, look outside. Uh, you have 12 hours, you and the Lansing girl, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, very threatening. I don't know anything about the history of this episode, but I would not be surprised if they were trying to come up with answering machine messages. And one of them was like, what about this? Because <laughs> this almost fits as one of the it does joke answering machine messages where, you know, he gets a threat and it turns out it's not for him. It's a wrong number. Mm-hmm. And we just blow that out to a whole episode. Yeah. And they're like, you know what? That could be an episode. Yeah. Like, yeah. All right. Let's make it an episode. 
Um, yeah, I have no wisdom to share on that account. It's certainly possible. So, Jim, you know, clearly this is not a call intended for him, but right. we then see over the rest of the scene, just with his uh, his facial expressions and physical action, that this is bothering him, and uh, he's not going to be able to sleep till he does something about it um, amidst his stripy 70s sheets as he wrestles with his uh, moral obligation here. And so we cut straight to Lieutenant Chapman giving Jim a hard time at the police station. <laughs> oh, it's a good one. There's two things here. The central, so plot-wise, uh, Jim goes to the police station to say, hey, I received this threat. Yeah. You should do something about it. Chapman intercepts him in the, like, in the room and decides to yell at him and dress him down in front of all the other officers. And uh, while Jim eventually gets to tell his story because it's Chapman, he doesn't believe him or doesn't think it's serious and, you know, ignores uh, what Jim is trying to trying to do. So the police are going to take no action. That's the plot. But yeah. what happens in this scene yes. is is a uh, head, uh, head-to-head status clash of epic proportions. One of the things I love about it is just how personal Chapman gets. It's not how personal he gets. It's because he's investing so much effort and let's say creativity into what sure. he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you realize it, his anger about Rockford isn't just this general like low-level annoyance with his cops goofing off right this is a personal thing for him right he's he's he starts calling him jimbo let's put a five-man detail on it for you come on now rockford give me a break will you i mean for weeks no no months no years i've been looking forward to helping you with some of your police work now you know what i mean jimbo well that's what becca calls you isn't it jimbo like in bimbo (laughs) Yes. It's not like he's trying to get Jim to go away. It's that he wants to just tear him down in public. Right. Right. Like that. Like that's my feeling here is that this isn't a uh, get out. We don't have time for you moment. Mm -hmm. This is a I am so sick of you. Right. That I am going to make this the most miserable experience I can for you. Jim even says, here, I'll tell you in your office. He's like, no, tell me here. Yeah, exactly. But then Jim, <laughs> being someone with an actual sense of humor, is able yes. to... This is It's late at night, right? So this is the swing shift. Uh, so there's all these yeah. cops just like sitting at their desks waiting for something to happen. Jim is able to, I think with little effort, um, turn Chapman's overbearing sarcasm into laugh lines on yeah. you know, turning them against him. With stuff like, uh, why are you practicing your material here? You should be on Carson. Like, yes. <laughs> um, he does call Chapman a bag of gas in a three-piece suit, which gets a big laugh. <laughs> I'm not sure if that particular laugh was er- like there's other stuff in the scene yeah, that I thought was funnier, but I think this yeah. was the this was the scripted laugh. Yeah, this is the one where we yeah we need that to happen so that so like Chapman gets mad. Yeah, one uh, of my favorite bits in this scene. So what do we come out of this with? A dead dog. Maybe. Or maybe we just get lucky and we turn up a guy with a glassy grin or a lampshade on his head. Billings, put Mr. Rockford on a skateboard and give him a push toward the sidewalk. Perfect. When Jim looks at Billings and just waves him like, that's that's all right. You don't have to do that. <laughs> like that, that is... <laughs> that is exquisite. The the tiny bit of status play in that where Jim is is literally overriding Chapman's orders. Yeah. You know, Chapman's orders were made in jest, but like still, he's like, nah, don't worry about it. I'll leave. Billings probably likes Jim more than Chapman. 
Like, let's let's yeah. be real. Well, uh, with nothing accomplished at the police station, uh, Jim goes back to his trailer where where, where Rocky has appeared um, to hear his tales of woe. So Jim, of course, is worried that this guy, Jay, because um, the threat was Jay and the Lansing girl, right? He's worried yeah. that this guy, Jay, and the Lansing girl never got the message. They don't know that there's a threat against them. And he's also kind of running on empty because he was on some other job in Denver or something. And it's like, yeah. been up for 24 hours and just got back. Um, so he tells his tale of woe. And then you see him thinking while Rocky tells his tale of woe, which is that while Jim was gone, he hired someone to replant his lawn. And paid him $400. But now it looks like it's dying. And there's this whole rigmarole where he's like, I've been calling him. And he has an answering machine like you do. And I leave messages and he never calls me back. You should call him. He'll call you back. <laughs> but while Rocky is talking, Jim has brainstormed a way to to figure out uh, how to help these people. And he's looking in the phone book. And it turns out that the name directly over James Rockford is Jay Rockfelt. And so this person must have been trying to call this guy Jay Rockfelt and dialed the wrong number because um, they were one line off in the phone book. So he calls that number. There's no answer. But it's an address in Hollywood. And uh, we have this great Rocky being like, yes, just because you can look him up in the phone book doesn't mean you're going to go over there. And mm-hmm. Jim gets his coat and heads out the door on a, uh, oh, I would never do something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's so like, this isn't a joke in the cut kind of thing. No. Because he's, he's clearly being sarcastic uh, as he's saying it. He's just sassing Rocky. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Up until now, um, there's this thing that's going on in that I'm just loving, which is how Jim is just incapable of letting this go. Mm-hmm. He gets the phone call, goes right back to bed, and then can't fall asleep. And like every step, he's distracted. He can't think of anything else but what's happening, which is great because, you know, he, he did what he had to do. He, he told the police, but that's obviously not going to help anyone. And he knows that people are in trouble. And it's, it, you know, like this is that moral underpinning to Jim where he's like, I just need to to find a way to help these people out. And he keeps trying to convince himself to forget it that he's done enough or whatever. And obviously Rocky is trying to convince him as well. I just, I'm just really enjoying every time he thinks he's done it, something reminds him of it or brings him to just where he needs to be to keep going. This is an episode where Jim, it's not even that Jim gets into trouble. It's that Jim kind of pulls himself against his better judgment in the sense of his like, mm. sense of self-preservation. Yeah. Like against his kind of like practical judgment gets himself deeper into a situation because his moral judgment won't let him walk away. We do cut from there to Jim uh, arriving at this house in Hollywood. There's no answer to the bell. He tries to knock and then he kind of shrugs and starts to leave. And that's when we hear the sad sounds of a crying dog Um, coming from off camera. And so Jim goes over to the bushes and there is a, there's indeed a flush, fluffy kind of collie-ish dog lying on the ground, clearly in distress. And uh, Jim, absolutely no hesitation here as Jim uh, picks up this poor, this poor buddy and gets him into yeah. the uh, gets him into the Firebird to go to the vet. The the Firebird in all this scene looks green. It does. I noticed that too. We we're like, oh, there's a new Firebird. But no, 
This is shot at night, so who knows what they had to do. Yes. This whole episode, it does... It's interesting, because I think you might have something about how they might have had to adjust for time because of some of some spots. But also, like, they really had to contend with weather. There's a lot of stuff that's at night, and there's a lot of stuff that's in the rain. Yeah. So I wonder if there was some kind of, like, I don't know, maybe that contributed to... Some editing choices also, because they could only get so yeah. many shots or something. Anyway, heads to an emergency vet uh, at an animal hospital, and uh, there's a very nice uh, vet assistant, not like the doctor. Yeah, yeah. You know, the woman who's there actually dealing with uh, the overnight stuff. Um, they have a little back and forth where he's like, oh, it's not my dog. And then she says, well, <laughs> we need the owner's permission. Okay, it is my dog. And then right. later, this isn't your dog, is it? He does say that the dog's name is Chapman. Oh, that's one of my favorite moments. <laughs> it is such a throwaway moment. Like, it, it feels like he's trying to get that line in there before <laughs> other action happens. And I'm like, oh, that's wonderful. That's just great. <laughs> but, you know, with his uh, uh, trademark charm, uh, he admits, no, he's not the owner, but he'll pay for it. The dog's in trouble. Can you just take care of him and she says that she won't tell the, the vet she'll deal she'll say that he's the owner you know they'll, they'll have to pump his stomach and he should be okay in a day or two the dog is going to be okay everyone the bit about the exchange that was uh i think kind of telling is just how non-expertly jim handled it like he solved it with his charm mm-hmm. but he he tried a little con, but his heart wasn't in it. Yeah. When he said that he was the the owner, he just didn't he didn't sell it. Oh, that was just a joke. I'm the, I'm actually the owner. It's like yeah. So definitely, uh, yeah, it's a good scene. So we uh, cut back to the house, uh, and there's two goons uh, waiting outside. Clearly, we're getting to some some yeah. dramatic action, and there's a woman up at the front door, and we cut back and forth to see that the firebird is in motion as uh, this woman starts screaming and yelling as these two goons run up and grab her and start bodily carrying her off the porch. Jim pulls up as they're kind of halfway across the lawn and he just runs in and breaks it up and just starts throwing punches, including <laughs> an over the shoulder like throw oh. of one of the guys, which is great. I, I wrote the flip into my notes because it was just so uh, I, I'm not saying that this is the best fight we've seen. It was just it surprised me with how dynamic it was. Mm-hmm. I just expected a few punches being thrown, but there was that. And, and then she comes out with that rake. Yeah, she grabs a rake from next to the house and starts swinging it wildly and yelling. This this is not a leaf rake. This is a garden rake. This is... Yeah. <laughs> this will mess you up. Yeah. So all this commotion does cause a neighbor to come out and, you know, yell yell for his wife to call the cops. Uh, so the goons uh, decide to flee. They run into the car and, and hightail it out of there. This woman, uh, we will soon learn, this is the Lansing girl. Carol is her name. Yes. Now, she thanks Jim, uh, says that she doesn't know who those guys were, but but there's been a lot of burglaries in the area recently, and Jay told me to be careful. must have been those guys. But uh, this certainly seemed more personal, and you know, Jim quickly deduces that she's, you know, her, her name is Lansing and explains who he is and why he's there. And he wants to find Jay, and whoever made the threat, those goons clearly were part of it, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's at the Paris at Dawn party at Keith's house, which is where she's supposed to be. Oh, no, but now her knee's all scraped up, and, yeah, you know, he's not going to like that. Jim says if she can take him to, to Keith's house, he'll he'll go ahead and provide the, the transportation. The Paris at Dawn party bit, is that a thing, if I were watching this in the 70s, that I'd know? <laughs> 
what it was. But I think Jim definitely let me off the hook there. Like, he didn't know what it was. Right. Like, I can't remember the actual line, but he did have a line like, oh, you wouldn't want that at a Paris at Dawn party. Right. You know, like, (laughs) so she's presenting it as if everyone would know what this this was. Totally normal thing. He, along with the rest of us, is like, I, I don't know what that is. And it's weird that you're you're doing that. Yeah. And there's this very clear uh, priority divide that will get wider and wider yes. as this episode goes <laughs> along. So we have a brief scene in the car on the way to Keith's house. Uh, Carol says it's weird that anyone would threaten Jay. He has nothing but friends, but maybe some kind <laughs> of weird gag. The dog is named Romanoff. Uh, apparently a spiritualist told Jay that he and the dog were both Russian rulers in another lifetime. <laughs> she makes some mention about Carbondale. Uh, and Jim asks if that's in, I think in Pennsylvania. She's from some small town, you know, back East and she's come to LA yeah. to find a big break, make some kind of you know, find, find her way into, into the world. And uh, this is the second time that she's been invited to a party at Keith's and the sun is almost up and they better get there. Cause she doesn't want to miss the bus. Yes. Like, ah, the bus, eh? And at this point, I had already forgotten about the bus in the opening (laughs) montage. So when there was an actual bus, I was like, what? Oh, okay. But yeah, uh, they arrive at a very fancy mansion uh, in the morning light uh, with the big, it's basically a big tour bus, um, like the kind you would go on a cross-country tour in. But not one that would take you all the way to Paris. Unless it's like paris illinois (laughs) (laughs) it's not that important but i think we can construct the idea by the end of the scene of what the whole deal is yeah so it's this big fancy mansion there's all these people there um it's not like a crazy party but it's i think we're seeing this is like they have been here all night and this is like you know the partiers being here till dawn right uh they go in and there's this big paris or le bust uh banner (laughs) on a balcony which is amazing and our first view of keith is uh out back where uh he is guiding a group of his guests throwing a giant grand piano into his pool oh my god the conspicuous consumption here this Mm -hmm. is I mean, again, it was from the opening montage, but it was still shocking to see. (laughs) Right. So this is like, this is debauchery, right? Yeah. And uh, Keith is a a Mick Jagger-like stand-in. And maybe we'll we'll talk more about Keith at the end of the scene. Right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Young, debauched, rock god with this party with all these hangers on he knows carol um they go to talk to him before they can learn where jay is there's a musical fanfare and there's an announcement that everyone has to get their ballots in because there's going to be the drawing for the for the paris trip uh they finally track down jay he's on the bus yelling at the bartender about ice (laughs) all right so in my notes from here on out i refer to jay as angel (laughs) yes (laughs) uh this is our first introduction to the actual character of jay he has a bit of that angel vibe as you say he's a bit weasley open collar chains um but he does not have the charisma i would say of an angel jim breaks into his yelling at the bartender explains about the call wants to know what the whole you know what the hell is going on anyway and he immediately starts going back and forth with carol because she forgot the bag she was supposed to bring a bag of some kind right in all the excitement because she was being abducted she didn't bring it and uh, he has a line uh, oh what's the bad news the bubonic plague <laughs> jim of course thinks that his dog being poisoned might have been the bad news He's like, oh that's yeah. bad too it's all bad news but he had it all worked out he had an antique derringer that he was going to give to the woman who was making the call the drawing to fix the drawing so that he yes. and carol would win the trip i guess 
But now that's all off because Carol didn't bring the bag. And then we cut back inside where she's drawn someone else's name right out of the out of the hat. Yeah. And there's, there's a thing about um, she wants the antique Derringer for a costume for another party. Or she wants it to, to, to wear to the to have to wear to the Grammys or something. like oh, that. Oh, that's what it was. Yes. Yes. That's what it was. A fix at the Paris at dawn party. Another myth shattered. Before we really learn anything else, uh, we see the goons in their car pull up in front of the bus. And Jay also sees them and uh, tries to to dip out. But Jim thinks quick and uh, starts the bus and just pulls out of the driveway past the goons with all the luggage falling out of the bottom of the the open tour bus. And everyone in this scene just saying the word hey to everyone oh, yeah <laughs> like hey 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 uh jim has a great line about the goons he refers to them as two steam shovels in mohair suits or yes. jackets or something like that and i'm just oh i just love the way this show finds different ways to, <laughs> to... <laughs> couple of steam shovels yeah so the rest of the sequence is a low speed bus chase because the bus could really only go so fast. Yes. <laughs> well, Jay says he, he didn't know that this was going to get to the stage. That it's going to get this yeah. bad. He needs to talk to Johnny. Uh, not <laughs> Johnny, as I wrote down uh, originally, but Gianni. Ah, yes. But they clearly need to get away from these uh, steam shovels first. So Jim knows where he is, of course. Uh, finds a tight alley that he can swing this bus into. And drives up to the front of it, where it's next to some boxes. And so it's kind of wedged in, but just pushed out enough that the door is, you know, yeah. on the sidewalk so they can get out. But the bus is blocking the whole alley and the, the goons pull up behind it and then try to walk next to it. And then they can't get through and it gets them enough time to uh, to, to get out of there. The, again, this is uh, the strategic mind of, of Jim Rockford during a chase. Uh, he tells him, don't worry, this is Hill Street or Hill Street's coming up or yeah. something like that. I get the impression that he knows that alleyway is up there. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. It's just like, and he's just telling them in the same way where they're talking to him about the uh, Paris at Dawn party as if he should know. He's right. doing the same thing. He's like, yeah, no, this is Hill Street. Like, that's fine. <laughs> we, we've got a plan. That's no problem. So the whole time, basically, Jay is both panicking and also undercutting, like, like constantly questioning what Jim is doing. Yeah. And, you know, undercutting him and just being a big weasel. So, yeah, I think we get an accurate introduction to Jay. Yeah, we should talk about Jay and we should talk about Keith. First of all, Keith. So this was this was very much a I don't know if you went down this this path, but I was like, all right, Keith is clearly this, you know, standing in yeah. for this type. Right. It's like, oh, who, who played Keith anyway? Yes. <laughs> so I finished the episode. I get myself on over to the credits. And well, what do you know? Keith is played by a very young Rick Springfield. Yeah. So I watched this with M and I didn't get a chance to go down that path. Like before he even uttered a word, M's like, that's Rick Springfield. Oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) For someone of my generation and musical taste. Right. I I then went, okay, I know he's famous. I don't remember exactly for what. Oh, Jesse's girl. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this was apparently between... Because he kind of like started his musical career and also started acting kind of like at the same time. Um, so this is after one of his early albums came out, but before the one where people started really knowing who he was, I guess. Oh, okay. So it's not even really a cameo. It's He was just in these random TV shows while he was also like starting 
music. Yeah. And this is something I didn't know, but then when I, I mentioned it to Liz and she's like, oh yeah, uh, he ended up on General Hospital. So right. he had a hit single in, I think Jesse's Girl is from his like 79 or 80 album, I forget. Yeah. So he had this huge hit single and he was on General Hospital in like the 80s and those kind of like were his rise to being a name Rich that people Springfield. would know. Yes. So this is pre all of that, but uh, also Australian, which I did not know. Yeah, but he's not putting on an Australian accent. No, this is a, I don't know. It's not as broad as uh, oh yeah the guy um, from Hawaiian Headache and uh, yeah Queen of Peru. Yeah. It's not as broad as that, but it is very much a playing up this, again, kind of, yeah, Rolling Stones-y. Yeah, British Invasion. This was also where I was like, oh, right, this is the episode with this guy. And I didn't have an image of what that meant for the rest of the episode. And I remember thinking this the first time I watched it. This episode is going to revolve around this guy and his orbit of weird music business right. stuff. Uh, it turns out that is not the case. Right. Like, it, it definitely <laughs> feels like... That feels like this is introducing, like, oh, here's who we're going to be yeah. following. And, uh, no. It's important backstory to Jay uh, and to Carol. Because yes. they're, they're hangers-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just Jay and Carol, though, but also uh, Gianni, as we'll find out. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk, as long as we're doing the IMDb thing here, I want to talk about Jay. Because Jay is played by a man who... I think is named after a Rockford villain. <laughs> John Plachette? Yes. Not Freshette or <laughs> any of the other many Shets. If you have a chance to go and look up John Plachette on IMDb, it's worth it for his cover photo alone. <laughs> <laughs> little bit of trivia he has i think probably the most confusing credit for rocky 2 <laughs> the director of rocky 2 is the director of rocky it's sylvester stallone but john plachette plays the director in rocky 2 so he's credited as rocky 2 director uh he certainly seems like someone that we've seen before uh he was in one other rockford files episode that we haven't done yet um so i think he just kind of has that air about him because i didn't really recognize yeah much of his other i mean he's kind of a character actor who's been in a million things but apparently he was in knots landing uh Uh, yeah he was in all of knots landing so if you've watched (laughs) that show he was richard avery i have never watched knots landing yeah so his character here julius j rockfelt uh whose name was transposed with rockford's in the phone book Mm -hmm. i wrote down angel it was based on the scene with him yelling at the uh, uh, bartender and not listening to Jim trying to tell him he's in trouble, right? Because I've seen Angel doing stuff like that. Right. Lording his tiny amount of authority over someone. Yeah. There's more to the character than that, but I think a fundamental part of this character is that they have Angel and they just suck the charming side of Angel out. (laughs) We're not supposed to like this guy. This is not a a, a dig on John Plachette. I'm just saying that this character is supposed to get under our skin and he does. The three of them end up back at Jim's trailer. We have a classic. Now that we're here, let's have the conversation yes. that we could have had on the way over here. Uh, which, again, I only notice when it happens because it's so it's actually pretty rare in a lot of the Rockford files. I will, I will say he puts his feet up on Jim's desk and, again, like... Angel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I'm going to have to bleep your, your profanities. Or well, you could call him, I don't know, Poop Angel. Poop Angel. I will I will curb my language. <laughs> Trash Angel. 
Trash Angel. Yes, Trash Angel. So this is a background story reveal scene. Again, a lot of good language, a lot of kind of weaselly back and forth between Jay and Jim, which I think is all leavened by the presence of Carol. Yeah. Carol's really interesting in this because she's like, she's the come to LA from the country to make her dreams come true, wide-eyed, naive character, but she's also truly nice and is willing to forgive a lot of everyone's flaws, but without it being in a way that's going to hurt her. We see a little bit of it more later, but like she knows when she needs to get out. Like she's not deluding herself, but she wants to see the best in everyone. So she's this like very mediating influence between Jay and Jim who are just going to like butt heads the whole time. She's attached herself to Jay. It's not super clear. I mean, I just assumed that they were in a relationship, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not really clear that that's the case. There's a whole bit where she talks about how charismatic Jay is. Like, Mm. like, no, no, he's not. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying she has good taste. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so what we learn here is that Gianni, he's mobbed up. Um, so Jay threw him a birthday party, and we get a little bit more about Gianni's personality by the stories that he tells about, you know, breaking people's legs and throwing acid in people's faces. Yeah. So I think this line's in the preview montage where Jay says, nine-tenths of that stuff is pure fabrication. Right. Apparently he also deals coke, which they all enjoy, so why are we going to yell at him about that? Oh, the 70s. So Jay downplays exactly how this happened, but he threw him this giant party party at this fancy club and then there was quote a mix-up and he had to leave early and johnny ended up stuck with the thirty thousand dollar bill for his birthday party 300 people i had this huge ice sculpture made in the shape of a rolls royce logo that's what johnny drives it was walter walter you mean all this is over the fact that you stuck some vegas adagio dancer with a tab for his own birthday party i don't see where any of that can hurt me you drop me a postcard let me know how it all comes out (laughs) you're not uh you're not kicking us out are you you got a bullseye, Jay, baby. Let me show you the door. <laughs> yep, I'm good. <sighs> You're out of immediate danger. This clearly isn't something that's going to make me any money. Yep. <laughs> uh, is there anything about this that can come back to me? Uh, uh, uh. Nope. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> but Jim doesn't understand. Jay doesn't have the money. And uh, his parents cut him off. Then we get into the the thing where Jay clearly has some issues with his parents. Uh, they make him sick. They speak with accents. Basically, he wants to live this, like, libertine lifestyle, but he doesn't seem to have any actual skills or, or not skills, but he depends on getting money from other people. And you get the the idea that usually it's his parents. Yeah. But uh, recently that well has dried up. Uh, and then we have a key line, which is, they named me Julius. Do I look like a Julius? <laughs> and uh, from now on, Jim is just going to call him Julius to get under his skin. Yeah, oh, it's so good. So Jim hustles him out, and Carol takes a beat at the end of the scene to say, you know, I'll say it because he didn't. Thank you for all your help. And Jim's like, well, I'm out of it, and that's all the thanks I need. Yeah. End of episode. Happy yep. ending. Uh, there was definitely a moment here in my notes where I'm like, you can't let Carol 
leave with Jay. Like, you yeah. can definitely turn your back on Jay, but you, you can't turn your back on Carol. You can't turn your back on Chapman, the dog. Uh, mm-hmm. But as we'll soon find out, <laughs> it's just not not possible. Night, there's another phone call. They're still calling that wrong number. <laughs> yes, I, oh God, I love this gag. I don't yeah. know why, but it's it, like, they could have done this without that, I guess. It definitely do- has reason to exist. It definitely yes. moves the for- story forward or whatever. But it just, it just is perfect, right? Yeah, of course they'll call Jim again. They have the wrong number. Right. They don't know that they're calling the wrong person. Yeah. And Jim can't get a word in edgewise. And they wouldn't believe him even if he... Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It is probably the key, like... I mean, it's it's the premise for the episode. But it's also, like... It is a key uh, rock for of the of the episode. Which, as we know... We enjoy. Um, so uh, we get a shot of the other end of the line and our first uh, look at Johnny on this call. And uh, Jay, Jay's not taking him seriously enough. Now they have his sister. And we see this, you know, this poor woman tied up with like a gag in her mouth. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's an ultimatum. Uh, you have 10 hours to get the money, be at this phone, or they're going to kill his sister. So stakes ratcheting way up yes we do go from that to a the scene this this episode has lots of like upbeats and downbeats like it has a really paced kind yeah. of sense to it the beginning of it was very fast paced especially like from the moment they meet jay well even before that but there's definitely a like i i made a note of that too because there's going to be a part uh a little later on where to build the tension, they do the opposite and they slow everything down. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed that. We kind of had like the upbeat of the chase and then the downbeat of Jim being like, I don't need, like I'm safe, get out of here. And then we have this upbeat of, I mean, you know, up and down in sense of uh, tension, right? Not in like, not in like mood. Right. So then we have this upbeat of the, the threatening phone call with the sister. And now we actually have another downbeat just because this is a slower, quieter scene where Jay has come back to Keith and is asking him for the $30,000. Right. And it's so it's like later that day or whatever, everyone's hung over. There's like random people like partially closed on the couch that like clear out so they can talk. Keith's asking for an explanation about the bus. You, you ruined the whole thing. Now, how are they supposed to get to Paris? <laughs> so I guess like everyone. Everyone's luggage was on the bus to go to Paris because it was going to Paris at dawn. But I guess the people who won, Keith was going to pay for them or something. Was everyone else just going on their own? I don't know. It's never explained. Or or maybe everyone brings luggage just in case they're the ones who won. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, no one's going to Paris because Jay ruined the whole thing. But Jay's, he needs help and he knows, you know, Keith's good for it. Keith says that he'll take care of it. And this is very much a, I think I remember this again from the first time I saw it where I was like, there there has to be some turnaround about this, right? Because it's so slowly extended. He's like, I'll take care of it. He gets the phone and he dials a number and he talks to Norman. Norman's his business manager. Yeah. And he tells him, hey, I need to help out my buddy. He needs $30,000. Yeah, here, you talk to him directly. It's like, all right, what's the turnaround? <laughs> Tell you your business manager how to make the checkout. Hey, Norman, yeah, it's Jay Rockfeld. Uh, yes, uh, listen, Mr. Rockfeld, uh, as you well know, if you know Keith at all, I mean, he would really love to lend you that money. But he can't. Yeah, but uh, Keith just said, but don't be mad at him, it's me. I can't allow it. Uh, because, frankly, he can't afford it. You see, he's got this 90% tax situation in England that's almost driving him under. And you see... Well, right now, he couldn't touch any of his money if he wanted to. You know what I mean? 
Yes, I understand. Such a wonderfully strategic dick move. (laughs) As that happens, I think you can see that whole time that Keith was like, I know this is is what's going to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. And Jay even says like, I can't believe you did that. You must have given him a code word to to tell him to blow me off. And I don't think that's true. No, I don't think he has to. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think he legitimately doesn't actually have access to money because of yeah. his taxes issue. Or which, again, is a very yeah. uh, Rolling Stones kind of thing. You told Woman's Wear Daily that I was one of your closest friends. <laughs> this is not the, the, not the last time we hear about <laughs> Women's Wear Daily. And I don't really know what that's all about. <laughs> Uh, the finest publication for rock stars. Yeah. And finally, Keith has his enormous bodyguard uh, kick Jay out of his house. Uh, com. Women's Wear Daily. This is a legit magazine. I feel like there are lots of magazines that you would have interviews in in the 70s. Yeah, magazines were yeah. different back then. <laughs> they were. They were. Uh, found it in 1910. Wow. Is it digital only now, though? Probably. Uh, yeah. It's 110 years old. Happy... I need a quick break. I'm going to grab a taco. You tell our wonderful listeners all the places that they can find you and your work on the information superhighway. I'll be right back. One way to find me is to go to twitter.com and search for at Epidiah, E-P-I-D-I-A-H. I'm usually responsive there. Otherwise, you can go to worldswithoutmaster.com where you can find my sword and sorcery fiction and role-playing games. And if you like role-playing games, Maybe you want to check out digathousandholes.com, where uh, I publish all my other role-playing games. Oh no, I dropped my calculator. Nathan, while I go pick up a spare, why don't you tell the good folks uh, where they can find you on the internet? In addition to this podcast, I also design and publish role-playing games, including the worldwide wrestling, pro wrestling role-playing game, among many others. You can find links to all of my games and other projects at ndpdesign.com and of course you can find me on twitter.com at ndpaoletta looks like you're back you you ready to continue the arithmetic analysis for this episode there epi i'm back i have my dm42 with me and i'm ready to get in dig down into rockford's books again Mm. all right well i'm done with this delicious avocado taco well let's get back to the show then so we go to Jim at the Vets. Uh, Jay never picked up his dog. <sighs> Trash Angel. Trash Angel. Jim is there, you know, checking on Romanov. And here's where we have both uh, the moral, I think he even refers to like, I'm not writing a term paper on this, but like, here is oh, your yeah. morals and ethics 101 conversation with Jim in his yellow on yellow, staying yes. against a yellow on yellow wall. <laughs> Oh, it's it's wonderful. Um, so I was talking to the woman who was taking care of, of Romanov, and he uh, spins out the basics of the story, which is, if, theoretically, if you got a phone call and you knew that someone was going to get killed if you didn't do something, but you don't want to get involved, right? Yeah. Uh, she increasingly takes the position of, if you, if you know, you have to do something. And he's coming back with like, well, people die every day. <laughs> Life goes on. I think we all know where this is going, right? He's not really arguing, but he's more making someone else talk him into it, into what he knows is is the right thing to do. I love when he presents it, like he he mentions Denver again. I was driving in from Denver the other day and I had a real sense of a job well done. You know, I'm driving along, singing a song. I rolled down the window, just belted it out. Then I get home, I get this phone call. And ever since I felt like Audie Murphy and Six Ways to Sundown. You're not making much sense, you know that? What He had a whole plan, and I've had this feeling. You have yeah. a plan, 
you go through something, it's stressful or difficult or something, and it's over, and you have a plan for the next couple of days. You're going to take it easy. Yeah. You're going to enjoy a little time off or whatever. And then that plan has been ruined, and you're mad about it. Yes. But you can't not address what's in front of you. So the, she obviously says the right thing, the same thing the rest of the audience is thinking, what Jim was thinking earlier when he kept coming back to it. or what, Like you said, he's looking to get convinced. But he has this great line when he's like, yeah, I'm very tired and I hadn't had much sheep. Does that count for anything at all? <laughs> <laughs> like I know this is just big philosophical moral dilemma here that has a clear answer. It's not really a dilemma. But also I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> and that feels very... I feel that as well. Yeah. We're all very tired. <laughs> um, I, I also like the aspect where she gets more and more like. Yes. Like at first she's like, why are you asking me this? And then by the end, she starts talking about how. I feel that we're all responsible for our fellow man. And in that responsibility is the opportunity to serve. And the service is a chance yeah, well, for the soul Susan, Thank you very much. That's all really. I mean, it was an idle question. <laughs> I didn't plan to write a okay. paper or anything. <laughs> She branches into a whole philosophy at the end, which is fantastic. And you get the feeling that it's not that she feels an urgency to convince Jim to do the right thing in a particular sense, but rather she is discovering a truth about the universe right. as she's saying it, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, no, 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 wait, this is the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, and of course, we know that Jim's going to make the right decision. And uh, we cut from there to him knocking at uh, Carol's door. Yes. He found out where she lives uh, through talking to her parents in Carbondale. So, you know, set that up earlier, spiked here. Yep, well done. Written. And she has a very Spartan apartment uh, with, like, unpacked bags still sitting against yeah. the wall. So this is where we get a little bit of her story where she says that uh, she met Jay the second day she was in L.A. and didn't come back to her apartment much after that. <laughs> but she's there now because uh they like met for coffee or something and they were they were arguing um kind of about the whole situation i suppose i forget the details but she basically couldn't deal with him being so confrontational and not understanding yeah. why this was an issue and everything so she said that she went she went to the bathroom and then she just couldn't face seeing him again there so she just left and came home so i guess this is what i was saying like she right isn't blind she just wants the the best version of what someone's gonna gonna be she can set boundaries right if necessary well jim's been looking for him all over the place he's not at keith's he's uh he drove the strip for a little bit even and didn't see him <laughs> uh but wants to know if carol knows where his parents live because jim figures him for a jello mold that's going to go crying home to, to his mother <laughs> Such a good line. So many good lines in this episode. She remembers a couple details, uh, a neighborhood, and his father's name is Irving, and that is enough to track track down the Rockfelt home. We see Jay see them through the window, and then we follow Jay as he goes downstairs when they knock, and then doesn't answer the door. <laughs> and then Jim eventually just opens it because it's unlocked, and uh, they have their uh, confrontation uh, in his parents' house. I like that he yells at Jay, why didn't you tell me the door was unlocked? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this is where Jim starts, just calls him Julius, uh, every time. And yeah. at some point he's like, well, James, like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. But essentially, uh, he can't get the money from his parents because they're not there. They went on, uh, like a Hasidic cruise to Mazatlan. Yeah. Which I love how specific that is. But yeah, so, so they go from 
Jim's saying, you know, I'm telling the truth. The uh, the itinerary is in the kitchen to <laughs> Jim and Jay waiting at a train station. Yeah. Where we discovered that apparently Jay called them, told them what was happening, that his sister, Amy is her name. Uh, yeah. She's in danger. And they flew back, but there was fog. So they had to land in L.A. and then uh, or they had to land somewhere and then take a train. Yeah, we see clearly their tense relationship. Um, they're they're certainly framed and played as like first generation Jewish immigrants who have worked really hard and yeah. come up in the world and are, you know, at the place where they are. And then Jay does not appreciate any of that stuff, resents <laughs> them for not acting American enough. Right. Right. The the mother dotes on Jay uh, a, a little bit and the father is clearly suspicious. Of, I love that the father was like, I'm glad Jay has friends like you looking to Jim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he means it exactly. It is exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Like, friends like you, a person who clearly is not his friend and is forcing him to do thing to do something <laughs> yes. right. Jim has a wonderful line in here that's like, "I don't care if you don't like it. As a matter of fact, I hope you don't." <laughs> when he's talking about what they have to do, yeah. Oh, because he tries to get his dad to to make the exchange in his stead. Yeah, that's a little later. Well, so here, so yeah, so Irving, he's gonna need a little time to get thirty thousand dollars in cash together, and yeah, uh, but you know he'll do it. Jim's like, "Well, Jay will stay with me, <laughs> and I'll set up the exchange <laughs> while you get that sorted." So we cut from there to the villain of our piece, Gianni himself at Ernie's Pizza House, uh, where he has the sister, Amy, tied up and gagged and has his soliloquy about yes. how, how evil he is. <laughs> oh, he's got such a classic look. Yeah. Uh, from the pocket watch to the mustache. He didn't need a soliloquy. We knew he was evil. He So this actor's name is also Gianni, which I think is great. Oh, good. Uh, Gianni Tedesco being played by Gianni Russo. <laughs> um, who we have seen before. He was in uh, Local Man Eaten by Newspaper. And I think he was the, the mobster, I think, who had cancer. Oh. Right, because that was the, where it was like the mobster and his mom. Yeah. Or something like that, or his aunt or whatever. I'm trying to remember. It's just... That was a while ago. Anyway, he was he was another mobster guy in local man eating buddies people might know him from from god from the godfather um he was carlo uh and he also i noticed this time was in laser blast oh laser mm. blast mm-hmm. <laughs> I, oh it turns out he plays a lot of mafioso <laughs> yeah <laughs> what do you know a uh, godfather's his first credit on yeah. here he apparently there's a piece of trivia that he he, he was casting a godfather like straight from a screen test or something like that wow <laughs> anyhow uh, he is extremely slimy here, and uh, part of it is that he keeps on like yelling at Amy and asks and telling her to answer him when she's like gagged, right? Like it's like he's he's lording his power yeah. over her, and it's, she's clearly terrified. So not a lot of moral wiggle room for this guy. Uh, but his bit here um, is not about the money. Thirty grand doesn't really mean anything to him. Who cares about thirty grand? Thirty grand to me is butkus. What I care about is nobody should treat me like no jerk. I'm dressed up in my best custom-made stuff, down on a dance floor with a suede chick, dancing up a storm, and your brother's up with the restaurant manager, making me look like a pool cue. Oh, it's so good. And uh, so once he gets his hands on him, he's going to give him a brain hemorrhage, and then uh, she will have a traffic accident. He, Yeah, there, there's more, but, you know, he's yeah. basically very specifically letting her and us 
know that it's not about the money. It's about getting back for his the slight on his pride, essentially. Yeah. Um, and he is going to kill them. Like, that is the plan. He. Th- this is approaching urban horticulturist. And in fact, he like, because the pull cube thing was one thing that he said. And I like, again, I have no idea what it means to be made to look like a pull <laughs> cube. You can, <laughs> you can imagine it. But he, he actually, he asked, why does he make me look like a, well, he says fruit peddler at one point. Oh, He's yeah. Like, <laughs> Why does he have to make me look like a fruit peddler? Yeah. It's just like, what's wrong with fruit peddlers? <laughs> Where do you get your fruit? <laughs> Anyways. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So he's bad news. Um, but we we get the call. He, he finally loses patience, calls back the number that he has for Jay, which is yes. Jim's number. Um, he wants the money in an airline bag. He's going to meet him at the gumball machine at the train station. Yes. Uh, our next scene is they, they meet Irving to get the money and it starts raining yeah. at the end of the scene. Yes. There's a bit where Jay says he, he basically tries to get his dad to take his place. He's like, couldn't yeah. you do this? And he, and he's, he's willing to, I think you see that he's like kind of in the sense of like, yet again, I will yeah. do the thing that my son won't. But Jim very specifically is like, no, Jay has to do this. That's part of the deal. And that's yeah. enough cover for, <laughs> for everyone to be like, all right, I guess, guess Jay's going to have to do this. I think his line here is, at last you'll be paying for one of your parties. Yes. <laughs> and then I just noted this because they pull away and when the camera stays on Irving and he puts yes. up his umbrella because it starts to rain like right then. Yeah, it lingers on him. And we said before, there's this moment with the bus chasing the bus where there's sped up footage. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, it's interesting that, that this was this is a beat that they chose to make and keep. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is the beginning of when I felt like um, the pacing deliberately slowed down to create more tension mm-hmm. where before the, the pacing is sped up to kind of get us through it to get us. Uh, but uh, no, I shouldn't say that. It's more like snappy. It's more like go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. To not let us think too much about what's happening or what's at stake. And yeah. now all we can do is think about it, which is exactly what's happening with jay right Mm -hmm. jay is going through his whole life from one party to the next like his plan was i'll give this antique derringer to the woman pulling a name out of a hat so she'll call our name so we'll be in paris so this guy this gianni (laughs) won't won't get us sure yeah that was his plan he's just not thinking things through and now he's got the he just has to sit with it that's just what he has to do and that's uh yeah yeah Uh, i really dig this moment here and uh and this is still it's not like it's silent right this is it's just a little bit more time taken in these this sequence where um jim kind of lays out what he thinks is going to happen like they're at the bus station he's putting you by a corridor of some kind so it's probably going to get you on a bus and that's the first rule of an exchange isolate the man with the money jay doesn't like how this sounds but really doesn't have any recourse and jim tells him to do exactly what he's told jim as we know he'll figure something out yes uh, and also, uh, Johnny doesn't know that Jim's involved, right. which I think is an important part of this whole thing. Uh, and then he does get a description of Johnny's Rolls Royce. Yes. Before he sends uh, Jay out in the rain with his airline bag to go meet meet his fate. Buttercream with a chocolate top. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think we might have skipped over this detail, but part of the $30,000 party was a giant ice sculpture carved in the shape of a Rolls Royce logo. Yes. So, uh, we then follow Jim as he lurks across the street and uh, spots the Rolls Royce. Johnny gets out and then Jim follows the car. Then we go inside uh, where Jay has been uncomfortably hanging out by the gumball machine, looking around, lots of nervous energy. Yes. And we kind of cut back and forth a couple times. Like you said, this slows down. Like we watch Jay for a little bit and then we see Jim find his parking spot. Then we watch Jay for a little bit. Like there's some camera time spent showing him getting increasingly agitated as he's just waiting and waiting. It's enough time for me to actually wonder if he was going to make a run for it, if that's what Mm. they were leading up to. Mm. So uh, Johnny comes in comes through the line, grabs him by the arm, and hustles him out into the bus depot. And uh, Jay is trying to make nice and be like, I got the money. What are we doing? Are we going to take a bus? Like, he's trying to have a conversation. And and Johnny's having none of it. Shut up. Come with me. Um, And they go past the bus and get hustled into his Rolls Royce, which had come around and was just like waiting by a loading dock. Uh, So the car then exits, and then we see Jim pick them up and follow. So this scene with Jay and Johnny talking in the roles on the way to their destination is kind of the uh, the meat the meat of the story. Yeah, <laughs> he's really sorry. He has the money. They'll be square, and he doesn't seem to understand that it's not about the money. Yeah, like it's not about the money, and I'm going to kill you and your sister. This isn't negotiable. He makes no uh, no qualms about it, and, and Jay just can't hear that. Right. Like, he does try to talk him out of it, but he still doesn't realize that it's a possibility. That's another place where Jay and Angel very much differ. <laughs> I feel like Angel would know that it's a possibility right. and not, you know, go. I guess they're neither going quietly. Right. Yeah, he would be trying to negotiate for his life as opposed to not seem to understand that that's not what this is about. That's not where we're at. <laughs> we get more, a little more from, you know, so, so Johnny explains himself and he tells his story a little bit and talks about how, you know, his dad came over here and worked himself up from nothing and people spit on his dad. And then Jay tries to, like, have a bonding moment. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm a kid in New York, right? My pup's an immigrant with no education and people spit on him, you know? Yeah, you think your pup's bad. You ought to take a look at mine. Bad? Bad. My pop was the sweetest man in the world. They spit on him. But I said, nobody's ever going to spit on me. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So Johnny came to LA to be an actor. And I think, and Jay calls him like, you're like a young Paul Newman. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, I came to LA to be an actor. He got some roles. He starts palling around with actors and they think he's cute because he's all mobbed up. But what he really wants, he wants them to be his friend. He wants to be friends with them and like be in their world as like celebrities. So this party, this birthday party, is his first party where he's involved inviting all of his friends, his actor friends, that he wants to be real friends with. And it's ruined because Jay stuck him with the bill. So now he looks like a fool. They think he set it up himself and they talks about the cake. Yes. Happy birthday, Johnny. You're such a swell guy. <laughs> Who writes that on a cake to themselves? <laughs> <laughs> so good. 
You actually feel embarrassed for him a little bit. I think the casting for this is really good because I don't know how hard this is to pull off as an actor, but like we get the over the top kind of villainousness in his first scene. And then here, this doesn't make him likable, but we get the like, oh, I I understand his motivation. Yeah. Like it's not just because he's evil. He does actually have an emotional motivation for what he's doing now. And it makes sense given the context of what we know about this character. Yeah. So it feels, it makes him less two-dimensional, I guess. Yeah. But we do end this with the the, the, the line that you so uh, astutely picked out from the preview montage. This party don't get paid for with money, honey boy. This is the party you don't come home from. Oh, it's so good. They pull up in some, you know, parking lot somewhere. The rain is, has stopped. Uh, we're now, you know, just in California daylight. Say we're gonna tie your hands to the wheel, and you and your sister are gonna like are gonna go off a bridge or something. Yeah, like that. something like that. We hear Jay go. I don't want to die in a rented car. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, perfect. Uh, and we have some quick action where they hustle him into a car. It's just this like primer gray, like generic car. It starts pulling out. We see Jim pull up, get out of his car. See, there's a big wheeled gate to the lot. So he grabs it and then he slams the gate closed as the car's approaching. So the car hits it and kind of punches a hole. It's like a chain link, right? Fence. Yeah. And so it kind of like busts through it, but it's enough to stop the car because now it's stuck in a gate and Jim is on the interior side. So he opens the passenger door and grabs Johnny and grabs his gun. And then we end the scene with, you know, Jim having controlled the situation and uh, saving saving the day as Jay and Amy will no longer uh, need to die in a rented car. It happened so blindingly fast. It's so fast. I had to rewind because I looked down at my notes to write something down. And then when I looked up, I was like, what? Wait, what? (laughs) But it was great. One of the things that I love about it is that as Jim is pulling Gianni out of the car, it's just essentially making an arrest. Like, it's just, uh, uh, what's his name? Jay is still like, Johnny, it was just a party. Like, he's still (laughs) trying to make friends with with Gianni. I think as we learn in our last scene here, he's never going to change. No. Um, As we go to Jim's trailer, where Jim is there with Carol and Romanoff, who has fully recovered. Um, But it was a close thing. The vet said that another another 10 minutes and uh, Romanov could have been a goner. So what's, you know, so what's going on now? Uh, Jay is trying to get back into Keith's good graces, which Jim doesn't understand. Uh, yeah, he's throwing a party where everyone has to dress up like a character in one of Keith's albums. He's going to be a dwarf in a helium hat. Yes. I looked up helium hat because I'm like, is that a reference? Is that a drug thing? Near as I can tell, it's all references to this episode. Okay. <laughs> It's just a classic cannel chase turn of phrase. Yes. It's what they what they expect uh song titles to be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's a definitely feels like a parody of maybe like a Pink Floyd song mm-hmm. or something. Uh Jay arrives. Um he's been looking all over for Romanoff. He didn't know that Jim had the dog, apparently. <laughs> yeah, he's not looking for him. But it's not because he wants his dog back, it's because he wants to lend him to someone for one of the costumes. <laughs> for the party uh we get a little bit of like a little more jokey jokums about this party and we learned that the guests of honor are actually going to be his parents which was amy's idea yeah and like someone else is paying for it like i didn't catch who that was or who that's supposed to be basically like you know this is his version of turning over a new leaf his parents are going to be there they're going to be part of the party he's like it's so kitsch it might work yeah. or you know something like that uh he's definitely more concerned about 
the party than his parents' enjoyment of the party. Right. I couldn't help but think in the beginning, his mom is going to love it. But by the end, they're both going to be completely disillusioned with who their son has become. (laughs) (laughs) This is what you're such a jerk about? Yeah. (laughs) To do this? Um, So Jim has one little matter to clear up. It was... $135 for the vet. Oh, yeah. And Jay's like, look, I've been like doing battle with the the, the hardest caterers in L.A. or something like that. <laughs> and like so starts making excuses. And I this might be my favorite moment of just like facial and physical acting where we see Jim knowing a lost cause when he sees it. Yeah. You know what? Fine. It's on me. <laughs> yep. And then we have our great, I don't know, is this is this pathos at the end? Where uh, Jay wants to take his dog. He calls for Romanov. Romanov doesn't come to him. He grabs him by the rough and takes him outside of the trailer. Door closes. He bit me. Why would he bite me? And then Jim opens the door. Romanov comes bounding back in. Come here. Come here. Oh, you rascal. <laughs> starts covering Jim in kisses and we freeze frame on uh, Jim and Carol laughing as our good boy Romanov gives the hero of our story the appropriate uh, reward. Aw, it was delightful. Uh, yeah, I, my notes follow this structure where I'm like, oh, don't let him take the dog. Don't let him take the dog. Oh, good. <laughs> all right good poetic justice i yeah. think is what i was going for yes uh at the very least everyone that can has left jay behind right <laughs> carol's not going with him yeah she makes the decision before the dog does yeah i don't think there's <laughs> even a line about it she's just there and maybe he's like you coming or something but she's just like no so good for you carol yeah it was a fun episode um that i was gonna say something about oh the party culture mm. it's definitely a thing right like i this is not a thing i know about about adults throwing i don't know like it just i feel like that that this episode is probably a commentary on a thing that exists at that time Mm. and how the makers of this felt about it (laughs) like la rock star party culture yeah Okay, so Carol comes to L.A. wide-eyed, meets uh, Jay. Jay is, he's got a connection to money, and that's clearly why anyone keeps him around. Because he pays for these parties using his his parents' money. Uh, So Jay has this sort of power over Carol that's built out of just, he can get her to these parties. Because in the beginning, you know, she's like, this is the second Keith party I've gone to or whatever. Um, the, the parties are the most important thing. And then we meet Gianni and we think, okay, here's the badass mafioso mm-hmm. that somehow got rolled up into this. And no, this is a guy who has mob connections, but wants to be part of this party scene. Right. So he throws parties. Like everyone's <laughs> into this party scene. Everyone wants to get close to Keith or the likes. Mm-hmm. So definitely it like either this is a constructed culture for this episode, in which mm-hmm. case, well done. Right. Or this is the thing that exists that uh, I've not really encountered in other fiction otherwise. I mean, like, I've obviously seen parties in other fictions, but usually, like, this sort of party obsession is aimed at high school or college sure. comedy movies, mm-hmm. right? Like, not uh, not a 1970s 
noir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly it's certainly like lampooning that yeah. construct. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. I believe it's a thing. Yeah. I think rich people do lots of stuff that we don't think about. <laughs> and I think one of those right. things is, yeah. is absurdly over-the-top themed parties. So I wonder maybe if maybe if we knew more rich people, we would have more context for <laughs> this kind of That's thing. That's true. Yes. I don't know. Maybe anyone who is, uh, you know, hanging out in L.A. in the 70s could help us out with the uh, with with how true to life uh, this <laughs> stuff was. Um, so we talked a little bit about how the the finale uh, is really quick, right? Like our yeah. climax, I should say, is really quick. Like that happened. And then I was like, oh, is this the end of the episode? Right. <laughs> um, and it was my initial response, you know, while doing my notes and stuff. I came away feeling like this one is a little thin in a way. Yeah. Does that make sense? And that's a question, not a, you don't need to agree with me about that. I'm just wondering if you felt something similar. I think so. I mean, like, um, I'm trying to think about why that is. Cause there's certainly plot. <laughs> yeah. There's certainly like a lot of stuff, but there's something about the solution to the problem being so straightforward and simple and quick. That might, that might be it. Okay. So we got this thing, the really tagline juiciness, which is Jim gets a wrong number and has to, to deal with it. Mm. And if you're told that, it doesn't matter if it's a Rockford Files episode. You're just like, oh, it's a detective plot. Somebody, this detective gets the wrong number and uh, it's a threat on someone's life. Then I, I suspect our imagination first goes to the whole thing being trying to find this person before the time runs out, right? Sure, yeah. You put the clock in the corner of the screen. You know how much time this person has left and you're just trying to solve a mystery the whole way. But he figures out who this person is. We get a little bit of that, but then mm -hmm. he figures it out. Then the plot changes to can uh can jim make it right mm -hmm. i think what it is is just maybe that this bit at the end is it's not that it's out of nowhere but everything else is set up like the beginning is like oh you have to find out who these people are they're in trouble and then the next part is this jerk won't do the right thing so you have to make him do the right thing because mm -hmm. you're the only point of contact they have they're still in trouble to okay you're making him do the right thing and now now we just save him. problem solved yeah problem solved i guess we don't get that last bit where it's like now if you don't do anything he'll die like the story tells us that but it doesn't tell jim that well i mean i think jim knows the score yeah um, yeah, that's true. He took him in a car and is driving him somewhere. Like yeah. Jim knows what that means. Yeah. Um, I think maybe there's something is something related a little bit to how it's a it's an episode where Jim, like we said, gets into it against his against his his ideal wishes. Yeah, and then that kind of means that he's he's problem solving, but there's no mystery. Right. Right. Um, like there's things that need to be fixed, but there's nothing that needs to be discovered. So there's no revelation that like satisfying, like, right. Either here's what's going on all along or like, finally, this uh, situation is revealed for what it always was. Uh, this is a little messy because I guess not every episode. It's not like every episode does that. But for some reason, for this one, it just struck me as being a little bit like, oh, oh, that was it. Yeah. But I think talking about it, I'm appreciating the other characters a little bit more 
Yeah. And that, that's the other thing is other than Chapman at the beginning and then Rocky for like a very brief moment. Yeah. There's no other uh, cast. Um, so maybe that's part of it. I'm just I, I'm just kind of like used to maybe it's because we did a really meaty Rocky episode recently. So I'm like missing <laughs> the like weight of that stuff. I don't know. It's, well, I don't I don't think your instincts off, though. I do think that the ending uh, and this has happened with a few Rockford Filed episodes where they're like, OK, we've built all this, but now we have to stop it. Yeah. And the cops come in. Because yeah. Jim, you know, set it up so that they would come in at the right time and yeah. justice is served kind of ending. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that's probably because I, I do I do know where you're coming from. Or rather, I can't say that I know where you're coming from, but I have a similar feeling about <laughs> the ending because the rest of it does feel like, you know, there's there's a mystery. There's there's something happening where you're, uh, you know, at first you're trying to figure out what, what this phone call is about. And uh, then you're trying to figure out, like, what what is Jay's? deal like what's <laughs> right. going on uh and yeah and the last bit you know you don't have to have a mystery all the way to the end but it just the last bit is just jim trailing them and then running up and closing a gate right <laughs> you know maybe it would have been just as simple as having some other action or having or, like that last bit be a chase instead of yeah. just like yeah i don't know it's it's uh yeah again not a complaint just kind of an observation yeah on the other hand i will say that going through this again i think this episode is a really really good example of conflict that comes from character Character choices and not from uh and not from not knowing things right yeah the central conflict or conflicts because there's multiple conflicts uh none of them are from i didn't know that this happened or i don't know who you are or i don't know why you want this it all comes from character this character made this decision and that interacts with this other character's decision and they will not be reconciled because of who yeah. they are and what those decisions were. And that's where the conflict comes from. I mean, the, the, the show does that pretty well most of the time, which is why we like it so much. But uh, this one is so much that that I almost didn't really notice it until we went through it and talked about it. And it's just like, we know everything. Like, I mean, yeah, it's revealed to us because it's backstory. But like, we know all the stuff that happened and we know all the motivations and it makes total sense that this is how this all had to go down because of these characters and their personalities and their choices. Um, yeah. So it's a really good example of that. And Keith and Gianni are great characters. They are good side characters, even though they're central. But yeah, uh, the whole bit to to uh, Jay is that you have to hate him and it worked. Mm hmm. <laughs> Just worked. Yeah. Uh, Carol, I did have this problem where I kept thinking Amy was Carol. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, how did they get? Oh, right. And then again, I was like, wait a minute, how did they? Oh, right. Yeah. His mm -hmm. sister. Yeah. We don't really know anything about Amy other than she has a, she's going to school for library science and she gets kidnapped. Yeah. So. <laughs> I love how dismissive he is about that, about oh her God. going to school for library science. Like this guy. What a jerk. Feels like the whole world agrees with him. Yeah. Ah, miserable. Yeah, I, I do agree. Like, um, the, okay, for instance, there's the scene where his dad is putting the umbrella up. Mm -hmm. It's this long lingering scene. And it, it, rain does come. I don't know if that's just to, they were filming and they had rain. And so they needed a scene to show us that rain was coming. That was a thing that they mm -hmm. decided later on. Or if there was this 
weight or meaning to this moment mm. of, you know, what's the symbolism in the umbrella? Right. Is his dad protecting himself from his eventual downpour brought on by Jay or I don't know, yeah. whatever. But like uh, the family, like his parents really texture the back half yeah. of the episode because um, I mean, they are kind of that type like they are that stereotype, yeah. but they're kind of being used in order to show why that stereotype exists, not just mindlessly. Right. Uh, I have a, a final point slash question for you. And this is, again, kind of thinking back over the episode. So we talked about, you know, the great scene with Chapman um, and then how kind of in retrospect, it's a little weird that Jim has this like full scene with Chapman. Right. Yes. For this episode in particular. Is it just a setup for the dog joke? <laughs> I, I mean, I appreciate it if it is. Yeah. So uh, I was looking at the, the entry for this episode in Ed Robertson's 30 Years of the Rockford Files. Oh, yeah. Um, and it doesn't really give any insight into what you were talking about, about party culture or anything like that. It does talk about Rick Springfield. <laughs> but uh, mostly it talks about how Rockford, he's an anti-authoritarian character right like he doesn't respect authority whether that authority is the police the fbi the mob as an authority right anyone who has like power like social or kind of sociological power jim like rejects that right yeah this struck me because it's kind of like this also doesn't really seem this kind of write-up it's interesting it doesn't really seem to come out of this episode other than the fact that chapman's in it so in the same way that there's a big scene with chapman that's kind of like why is that in this episode there's this quote here which i like but it's also (laughs) not really (laughs) coming from this episode this isn't an anti-authoritative except for that moment but there's a great quote here which makes me think about something that you always say so it's a quote from uh, juanita bartlett we always tried to give rockford worthy opponents because his triumph wouldn't mean much if it wasn't against a formidable foe there's no triumph in outwitting a stupid person (laughs) and then the next line is the one exception would appear to be lieutenant chapman (laughs) (laughs) not a quote just that's the, yeah, the text that's great but then bartlett says the chapman character is is hardly stupid at all he didn't like rockford but a lot of police don't particularly like private investigators chapman wanted to run things his own way because he was on his own turf he also knows that whenever rockford's on a case he's making hell of a lot more money than he is and he's putting in less hours and he can quit <laughs> whenever he wants to and he doesn't have any of the restrictions that a cop has rockford doesn't have to go by the book he just has to stay out of trouble chapman wasn't stupid by any means but he could be impossible to deal with nice little little Chapman insight. Yeah, a little Chapman insight. It does seem a little weird to be like put into this episode. Yeah. I mean, it works in the part of the... I think that's the thing about this episode is that they're, you can cut it up into chunks. I don't know if they follow like an act break or anything mm-hmm. like that, but you can cut them up into chunks and as a whole, those chunks work. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they don't work put together. It's just that they definitely... Like that Chapman bit doesn't echo out. Yeah, It is part of that chunk, which is a great chunk, which is the, I got a call in the middle of the night and what am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Oh, the cops are going to not help me. Right. Because of this, because of Chapman like that. And I, the, the last bit isn't as chunky. Yeah. (laughs) A bad word. (laughs) And again, it's a little ironic because Jim doesn't really outwit anyone in this one. Yes. (laughs) But the point stands of, and that's, I think we see that much more in other episodes. Yeah. It feels really good when Jim, when Jim ends up figuring something out and being just a little bit ahead of his foe, yes. whether that's he's ahead in planning or he is ahead in having a solution or, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, I think back again to like, you know, some of the great villains 
we don't need to talk about uh, uh, David any more than I think we already have. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But exactly. like the but like the mobster from uh, Rosendahl and Gilda Stern are dead. Yes, Abe Vigoda. Like it felt like a like a win, even though he ended up literally taking himself down. Right. Yeah. But like. He was such a threatening presence that yeah. that felt like a really significant win. It felt like all the work that and and uh, danger that Jim and Rita had put in and been through really paid off because he was because uh, a Vagoda's character, uh, Phil the dancer, yeah, was so threatening and had so many resources at his disposal. Yeah, and so in this, like Gianni's very threatening, but Jim doesn't deal with Gianni. Like he ends up sol- like winning, you know, saving the day, but they never interact. Gianni's always yeah, interacting yeah. with Jay. I mean, I guess it technically talks him on the phone or hears him on the phone but so it's just a weirdly kind of a it's kind of a weird episode to talk about that because johnny's more pathetic than threatening that's the thing i really like about him is how he starts off as just he's just uh, like y- you think that he's a big mob boss and then it, it starts rolling downhill and then mm-hmm. as it's starting to roll downhill you're like right it's a weird he, j- he poisons the dog like mm-hmm. he's doing these really weird petty things which makes sense if you realize, oh, he's just a wannabe as well. Yeah, yeah. He's just a wannabe who's willing to do the worst. He, Yeah, he, he plays up how tough he is to the woman who literally can't talk back to him. Yeah, exactly. It's a interesting episode. Yeah, definitely. And we got to see a piano get thrown into a pool, so yes. who doesn't like that? <laughs> Uh, you got like a dog fight going on in the background there. There's a really angry Pomeranian that lives next door and barks at other dogs. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. So if any of those dog barks come through, there's only so much <laughs> I could do. Speaking of dogs, also yes. in this episode, one of the joys was seeing just how much uh, James Garner seemed to enjoy interacting with Romanoff. Yes. Because who wouldn't? <laughs> and so maybe it's a good time to throw out that uh, if anyone started listening to us recently and uh, didn't hear okay. our interview with uh, Gigi Garner over the last summer, uh, Gigi runs a pet rescue charity in James Garner's name, yes. um, as she's also a lover of dogs, and so was James. Um, I know these are tough times for everyone, but if there are if there's room room for a little charitable contribution, you could do worse than checking out uh, J Garf J G A R F dot org james gardner animal rescue foundation fund fund i think it's the fund uh gg coordinates animal rescues with multiple um facilities through in different states i think so you know if that's uh something that speaks to you maybe throw a little cash that way help the dogs it's worth going to the page just to scroll through all of the pictures of the dogs and james jgarf.org um and uh so we will leave you to scroll through some pictures of good good dogs (laughs) but we will be back next time to talk about another episode of the rocker files bark 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 bark